It's the iceberg. It's all on the surface, baby. Episode two. Your lone host this week, myself, Lee. We have a myriad of topics to get to today, if we even get to all of them. A grab bag, if you will. We have the Zack Snyder cut of the Justice League to briefly touch upon. We have Sultans of Slam uh, talking about AEW Dynamite from last week. That's March 17th which is uh, ancient history now to most of you, I'm sure. We're going to talk a little bit about the crispy chicken sandwich situation, just in general, in the world. We're going to uh, throw it a read for some anime, and I'm going to try to begin to encapsulate uh, my Korean fandom of variety shows. Uh, we'll get to that. So generally, what I'm picking up over the weekend is that one man's vision, even if that man is Zack Snyder, is a more coherent uh, piece of art than uh, it being tossed to Joss Whedon and a board of producers to try to shape that Justice League movie into something they felt would compete with the MCU's best offerings in the Avengers and stuff like that. And uh, I'm glad to hear it. Unfortunately uh, for many, it's, it's not God's gift to cinema. It is not ap absolutely fucking fantastic and I can't believe they... Uh, chopped up this man's art, uh, but it is, is is my understanding, and I've heard from Reed as well, who hasn't watched an AEW show in a wee year, but he, he watched the four-hour Justice League movie on the second day it was available, and uh, so now people are, are pretty thrilled. They're like, oh wow, I want to see the DCU move forward from here, and uh, it, ca it can't. Uh, people are like legitimately asking for the David Ayer uh, cut of Suicide Squad, which I'm vastly interested in, because goddamn... Uh, from an editing point of view, that was less reshoots and more just, what do we have? Let's chop it together. Let's add some pop music. Let's make this Suicide Squad movie into something it absolutely isn't. Even when you hear that uh, the Joker was more involved with the, the villain in that movie, which would make more sense. Otherwise, the Joker is completely out of place in that theatrical cut of Suicide Squad. Uh, even, you know, more Joker, yeah. Uh, even though Jared Leto is certifiably the worst Joker we've ever gotten. Zack Snyder... Uh, had a family tragedy and had to step back from Justice League, which is uh, why this all took place in the first place. They did all the reshoots, of course. Uh, changed, you know, changed the vibe of the movie thoroughly. And I have never seen Justice League, so I am really reporting uh, secondhand here. If you want to hear someone dig deeper into the Justice League, it'd probably be very boring, because unfortunately this movie is not bad. Uh, I, I don't know... There was some sect of the internet that was secretly hoping this Zack Snyder cut, after all this time, would just be utter shit and worse than the original. But that's just not the case. Uh, things like changing the amount of screen time of characters, or, or even literally, you know, how much of the plot is, is focused around them, or how do these characters come together. These are all things that... Man, uh, like I'm hearing Cyborg. People are talking about Cyborg. This guy. This guy Cyborg. Uh, how he's a side character. They gave him a quick origin. And then he's got five lines in the original movie where he's a, he's a bit more of a focus in this one and stuff like that. So, very interesting situation. What this means to the future of the DCU. I don't know and I don't care, uh, frankly. I don't know what is... What's on the docket from them. We got we got the Batman. Or uh, the Robert Petitson, uh <laughs> Batman movie that's coming out. Uh, sure. That guy's a... Good fucking actor. That's probably going to be... I, I stand by giving these DC characters and these universes in a, in a not-connected cinematic universe is where Warner Brothers and DC has found their bread and butter for years. Giving Batman to auteurs uh, to be like, hey, make, make your Batman has yielded uh, the most success for these movies. And giving Man of Steel, giving Superman to Zack Snyder was kind of... 
was kind of that until it was like, no, 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 this will be this. We're we're going on to the Justice League, and you, sir, you, sir, will be the the one, uh, the vision that we will. Zack Snyder, as a visual director, as a guy who's just like, this would look good. This will look uh, astounding on, in a movie theater. Uh, I I cannot deny that about Zack Snyder, but I've called that man a hack and someone who should be working on music videos for years. Uh, after having to sit through movies like goddamn Sucker Punch, uh, or even going back to watch 300 now after how fucked out that slow-mo stuff is, that that is still in Justice League, you could cut that movie down from four hours to at least three, just taking out that, that slow-mo during the action scenes. It's like uh, comedians now working in COVID having to uh, do shows in front of no one, and there's no laughter, so the pacing of the show gets fucked up, and suddenly your hour-and-a-half-long set is 45 minutes, and you're wondering what happened. Uh, that's that's where we're at. Now, I will defend Snyder on one thing. Watchmen. I, I think his visual style lent itself perfectly to that movie, uh, even as a big fan of the, uh, of the book. S- the books? The comic books? That's right. Not a graphic novel. Goddamn comic books. Uh, I think that in anyone else's hands or in it, like if, if they hadn't let Zack Snyder make the movie he wanted to make, I think it would have been a much worse movie. And now we have proof of that in them taking what he had done on Justice League, handing it to someone else and changing it into what they think would do better versus just the natural progression of what was already filmed. Uh, I think is without getting too much more confusing about it. I think we're going to leave it at that. And uh, so if that's your thing, go check that out. Uh, if, you, if you want that AR cut of Suicide Squad, come on, let's hashtag together. Let's get that happening. I'll, I'll see that movie. I, w- I would see the AR cut of, uh, of Suicide Squad. I like Suicide Squad as is. I think it's a goddamn mess. Uh, but I like what it's going for. It's something different. Something that uh, they beat Marvel to. Marvel needs to do a Thunderbolts movie in the worst way but they haven't made a a stable of villains yet because it's all movies and it's all people with space lasers and world ending stuff you need more uh you need more fucking mac gargans you need more green gobblers you need more uh rogues gallery guys of of a mid-level of a, a uh how do we put this of a like kind of petty criminal level or crazy man level uh, to make up a roster stuff such as this, which is what Suicide Squad was. Uh, anyway, I digress. Oh, baby boy, wrestling! Let's talk about it. AEW Dynamite 4, March 17th, uh, opened with Cody Rhodes versus Penta L0M. Both Lucha Bros uh, managed to get themselves into some singles action on this show. Was a pretty uh, a pretty solid match, I would say, as an opener. Fantastic. Uh, you couldn't ask for, for a better opener. Post-match, Penta attacks and swings away on Cody Rhodes. The Gun Club and Dustin Rhodes make the save. Uh, however... QT Marshall walks out to the stage and asks Cody if he's okay. The group is asking QT why he wasn't out there to help. A slow burn on a QT Marshall heel turn, uh, which is cool and really cool that they're doing uh, that level of storytelling that started really subtle and will, will gradually become more apparent as time goes on. The only thing is it is QT Marshall and, <laughs> you know, all the best to QT Marshall. He really helped out AEW Dynamite and and he is... He's, 
Uh, great wrestler. He's, he's obviously taught a lot of uh, the talent in AEW. They've come a long way in a short time. Love QT Marshall. Don't really care about QT Marshall's heel turn and what he is as a uh, on-TV character. I don't know w- why I'm supposed to care about him. Sorry. Backstage, Alex Marvez notes that Pac and Ray Phoenix still have a title shot against the Bucks. Uh, Matt says that they may have lost uh, singles matches to the challengers, but this is a tag match and they are still the best team in the world. Cal shows up and uh, generally makes me feel better about this whole storyline with Don Callis coming in with Kenny and the, and the good brothers and all that. Callis is saying uh, that Matt and Nick aren't the same guys he saw in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, Matt and Nick may have founded this company, but he doesn't see anything elite about them. Don continues that they have killed their careers and uh, they're letting others take over, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he also mentions that they didn't kick him in the head during that previous segment. So that's that's cool. Like, what is that? What was that, six weeks ago? I think the problem with the Don Callis Young Bucks and all this stuff that I've had and that uh, some people have had with the storytelling is just that it's... They they needed uh, time to pass. They, they needed to wait for the next... Uh, after Revolution, after whatever's coming next here... Uh, to, to be able to now move forward. And when it wasn't, they were really spinning their wheels there for a bit. And they couldn't go all the way and uh, and kind of show where this was going. Now, I think it's finally taking shape. And we'll, uh, that's kind of the, the nutshell with AEW, though. With uh, the pay-per-views and the payoffs, let's say, uh, so far apart. Is uh, we had the Sting thing, like the the almost meme of Sting being interviewed by Tony Schiavone every single week, and Team Taz coming out every single week to lead to the street fight, and now on this show as well, we have Tony Schiavone talking to Sting. Uh, but there's there's a different angle. Something's moving forward now. Something has changed. Uh, so I think I I don't know what the answer is. Uh, obviously they don't want to give away too much on TV because their TV is completely all over the place. Uh, nothing they do seems to earn them more viewers aside from, uh, something like having Shaq on the show, uh, which gets the casual fan and nothing they do for the hardcore seems to like the effort they put in doesn't seem to, uh, bear fruit, I guess is the way to put it. So like, yeah, we're halfway to a pay-per-view. Let's build up Kenny Omega versus Christian Cage as a TV main event. And the numbers come out and and it's 650,000 or something. And it's like, well, fuck. Uh, we, we gave that away. Some people saw it. It's it's five out of five stars. Uh, but, eh, oh well. I, I don't know if that's, that's my take on it. Anyway, Jade Cargill in action here against Danny Jordan. Uh, Jade Cargill wins pretty quickly with a release German uh, suplex. Uh, she then goes and mouths off with uh, Red Velvet at ringside afterwards. And, uh, yeah. MGF's group, come, uh, group, group comes out to the ring. Tully gets on Mike and recaps last week's attack before handing things off to MJF. This group will be called The Pinnacle. MJF runs down every member of The Pinnacle and uh, tells us why uh, they're in this group. I love this. It's got a Dark Avengers vibe to it. He's he's put together a team with like direct competitors to uh, the inner circle, uh, one for one. I think that's really really fun. I think that's leading to a great hey Stadium Stampede or something like that match. Uh, this is really cool. This is a cool faction of heels. They are credible, and uh, I think this is this is gonna be good. It's gonna be good stuff, guys. MJF, come on now. This guy on the mic, unreal. This guy is five years old. No. Uh, he's he's very young and he's very confident. He's fantastic on the mic. Guy can wrestle. Uh, sky's the limit for MJF. Matt Hardy, the Blade, the Butcher, and Private Party with the Bunny versus Jurassic Express in Bear Country. 
don't know if we've seen much of Bear Country on uh, AEW Dynamite, uh, but but here we go. This was this was a match. Matt Hardy wins this one, gets a W. John Moxley and Eddie Kingston are getting ready for their tag match tonight. Moxley is uh, not feeling super good after what happened in Revolution, but it's time to go to war again. He says it's time to fix the real problem, and he has decided that the real problem is the Good Brothers. Uh, talks about wasting money on Talking Shop of Mania. Kingston uh, gets a little bit more serious here and says this isn't the Impact Zone, and this isn't the Tokyo Dome. He calls Doc and Carl uh, cowards, and uh, a coward dies a thousand deaths. Moxley and Kingston are soldiers, and only die but once. Backstage, uh, Dash, uh, Dasha talks to uh, Christian Cage and asks him what brought him to AW. He talks a lot about being a workhorse, which from a kayfabe point of view is a, a weird thing to talk about. I lose all my matches, but I work real hard, is basically what you're saying. Uh, no, no one can dispute that even though I may have lost a bunch of matches, and it doesn't make sense in the storyline, that I would get a championship, uh, whatever. I, I'm the hardest working guy in the back. Doesn't make a lot of sense. His motto, out, work, everyone. He's got his sights on Kenny Omega's uh, championship. And, uh, ta-da. The Good Brothers versus Eddie Kingston and John Moxley. It's nice that John Moxley has a friend in Eddie Kingston. This was a fine match. And, of course, things break down afterwards. The Young Bucks come out with the save uh, as Kenny Omega and Don, Don Callis are uh, about to lay the beat down uh, afterwards here. And, uh, yeah, more dissension. Uh, the Bucks, not... No full turns for anyone here, uh, but it seems like the uh, the Good Brothers and Don Callis have definitely outstayed their welcome here, yet they are attached to your world champion. What are you going to do? On the uh, stage, Tony Schiavone talks to AEW champion Darby Allen and Sting. Uh, Allen t- talks about the street fight a bit, talks about being a champion for a long time, but only having defended it three times. The crowd starts to uh, cheer. Uh, he says, this is, this is not this is not what I intended. Uh, by that, I need to defend this thing goddamn way more. Uh, Lance Archer walks out. And uh, wonders how many times Sting is going to be interviewed by Tony. Which is, on one hand, being like, okay, it's, uh, they're self-aware. Uh, they know. <laughs> they kn- Guys, they know. But on the flip side of that, if you know, why do you keep fucking doing it? Uh, also, uh, it, during this, Darby Allen has opened an open challenge to the uh, Dark Order member. So, we'll see. Uh, Archer calls Allen an indie-rific joke. And then uh, Jake the Snake tells a... Like, wiener in a bun joke. Anyways, Team Taz comes out, and they're about to talk some shit, but Brian Cage takes the mic from Taz and says some genuinely nice things to Sting. Uh, He says to Sting, Sting shows up like some hotshot and sticks his nose in their business after every week. Cage then says he respects Sting with or without his bat. Ricky Starks is wrong. Sting is still the same as he's ever been. Taz is wondering what the heck Cage is talking about. Cage walks to the back with the rest of the group following behind him. And Helico versus Ray Phoenix... We get Ray Phoenix as the uh, the winner here with a uh, sit a sit out pile driver. Again, I'm using someone else's notes here just for the finishes, and uh, bit of typos. Uh, okay, so lights go out. We're gonna have an unsanctioned match here, and it's Britt Baker versus Thunder Rosa, and it's insane. This match, go out of your way to see this uh, because who knew these ladies were were capable of some <laughs> of something quite like this. Uh, Britt Baker has been somewhat. Uh, inconsistent in her run in AEW so far. She's come such a long way, and it's clear that with the right dance partner partner here, Britt Baker is one of the best they have. And if not the best they have, Thunder Rosa is incredible. Uh, Thunder Rosa takes the win here. This match goes like 20 minutes or something like that. Uh, it's getting accolades from all over. It's bloody. They both have crimson masks in this match. 
there's a thumbtack spot, which, uh, yeah, I've seen a million times. But this was different. This was uh, breaking up a submission by making your opponent lay back in some thumbtacks. It sounds gruesome. It is. Uh, but in a... a the violence and the intensity of the match kind of go hand in hand. And this was better than anything I've seen any no DQ or disqualification match uh, attempted in AEW, to be honest. So you just had an exploding barbed wire match. For my money, this was a better uh, blood and guts match than that. So go out of your way to see Britt Baker versus Thunder Rosa. And uh, hats off to them. God damn, the bar has been raised. And that's the first, I think, female main event on Dynamite. And they fucking, they did it. You couldn't have asked for something better. Uh, fantastic. Over in WWE, we had the Fastlane pay-per-view. The Fiend has returned. Listen, I'll be honest with you. Uh, we went and saw that Raw show in February of last year, uh, which was then the road to WrestleMania. That was uh, when Edge had been injured by Randy Orton. Randy Orton opened that show. And uh, what were the other programs on there? Brock Lesnar came out and then left. Uh, it wasn't a very eventful Raw, I'll say. Oh, Seth Rollins was still kicking around then. That was before the uh, everything to do with he was still the Monday Night Messiah there and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, lame. Uh, but that was the last time I really paid attention or watched a WWE show just because I happened to be there in the crowd. And let me tell you something about house shows or Raw tapings or anything. Uh, they're a lot of fun. House shows especially, I always recommend, especially for WWE. I don't know if they'll ever do one again uh, in their existence, but goddamn. Uh, that's th- that's the show to go see live, uh, in my opinion. Hopefully, AEW can figure something out and start touring again. Come up to Canada because we are we are jonesing for it. So I follow a- uh, WWE via afar. Uh, basically, I pay uh, Brian Alvarez to watch it for me and let's just listen to to uh, Wrestler Observer Live. Follow along with the the storylines or lack thereof happening. And uh, the thing that's most curious to me is this whole Charlotte thing going on. So there was a COVID outbreak. At NXT, and they had like a fourth of their roster on last week's show, and I don't know what it's looking like this week. Obviously, there's a, a quarantine period, uh, but there's also, you know, some some of these people will be long haulers. They will be feeling the effects of COVID for a long time. Uh, as of yesterday, Rhea Ripley has come in and challenged Asuka for the championship at WrestleMania. I had no idea Asuka was the current women's champion. But good for her. She, If anyone should be, it should be her. Uh, people thought, I guess, Charlotte and Asuka was going to be the match there. Charlotte has announced publicly that she has COVID-19, also part of the storyline. And that uh, she is likely a scratch for, uh, for WrestleMania. But then you also hear that WWE Productions is involved with a remake of Walking Tall. Like the Dwayne Johnson Walking Tall. Before that, there was also a Walking Tall. Uh, and uh, she'll be involved with it. And then that's why she's missing uh, WrestleMania, and that the COVID thing is, is is coincidental. On top of this, you have Andrade, her boo, Bo, boo, asking for his release from WWE, being denied, and then subsequently granted his release from the company. Okay, so let's uh, let's take this all at face value here. Uh, if Charlotte has COVID uh, and thinks that maybe she will be sick or she's has very serious COVID and they're just writing her out now for WrestleMania, makes perfect sense. But then you include the movie-making rumors and it's like, well, why would they take out one of their biggest stars during WrestleMania season if, in fact, this is a WWE-involved production? Why wouldn't they push it back a month, push it up a month if they needed one of their top stars? at the, And char- make no fucking mistake, Charlotte Flair is one of the top stars in WWE, if not a top five name in that company right now in terms of 
complete ability, the the total package I'm talking. And if we were to actually name the other four people on that list, oh boy, we can give it a try. Uh, Drew McIntyre, of course, of course. Roman Reigns now is a, the, the, the tribal chief as a heel. Absolutely on top. Over to the women's uh, division of things, though. Other than Charlotte Flair and Becky being absent currently, Asuka, of course, always has a... Uh, we, we stand Asuka. She has a place in our hearts and uh, should always be the champion now, now, then, and forever. Um, but let's be honest, in terms of catching fire in WWE, hasn't really happened, as is the case with most of their, uh, let's say, foreign talent or anyone who can't really get on a mic and uh, spit in English for, for long periods of time. And that has a lot to do with their Spanish uh, talent there as well. And why uh, they they can't make stars. Uh, they, they keep bringing they keep bringing people in. They're like, well, this will corner the Latino market. And then uh, the person inevitably can't cut uh, promos in English. They should do what they do on AEW. Uh, what, what, what's that guy's name? Adam something? The guy who was backstage with Penta in the picture-in-picture picture at the beginning of that show uh, basically took what Penta said in Spanish and then delivered it in English, but like in a like a sleazy kind of way, like in a way where he's just loving it, saying what he's saying. That's great. Uh, and that's a great gimmick they should they should implement elsewhere, uh, just in the industry in general. Uh, I think that's a, that's a cool mouthpiece way of going. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Who, who, who is it? Who, like... You have Alexa Bliss, who is incredibly popular, but you look at that program right now. Is it is the answer Randy Orton? It can't be. Grab a headlock, brother. It's Randy Orton. Uh, I love Randy Orton, but goddamn, has that guy had... Like, look at that guy's year of programs and what he's got going on now, like, puking out black bile and this whole thing with Alexa Bliss filling in for The Fiend and, like, what they're, what they're going after. I don't... It's upsetting. But not as upsetting as the Fiend returning at Fastlane in a, like, charcoal briquette uh, costume here. Looking like the fucking poop monster from Kevin Smith's Dogma. The Fiend was always uh, bad. I, I don't know if you, you know this. For, for months, people were like, the, no, the, Fiend, the Fiend's good, though. The Fiend's, the Fiend's good. It's great. It's scary, man. Look at that mask. It's crazy. It's got Bray Wyatt. Does it? Uh, I, I'm not sold on Bray Wyatt. I'm not sold on Bray Wyatt. <laughs> It's a good wrestler. I don't know. Uh, it, it was at least something different than what he had going on. And it was new and it was for WWE programming. Definitely one of the more unique things they had going on there with his uh, Firefly Funhouse and the reveal of The Fiend and, and how grotesque that mask is. But now, now we've uh, we've definitely jumped the shark. Uh, I guess on The Fiend. I don't know. Your thoughts below. Chicken sandwiches. You know about them. In the recent years, or specifically year, it seems like a war is being waged uh, in regards to the classic chicken sandwich. Now, Popeyes has recently moved into Canada. Uh, I mean, they've been here for a while, but here in Winnipeg, in particular, they, they've they've really spread uh, spread out. And of course, we all know the Popeyes chicken sandwich. It's fantastic. So of course, Popeyes opens up here. We all rush in and we eat what we think is this chicken sandwich that people are like sucking dick for in the United States. And it's not that. It's a good chicken sandwich, but it's not it's not the one. So suddenly, months later, uh, the Pop- Popeyes is like, no, no, no. Now the chicken sandwich is available, and we all you see the advertisements inevitably. And we're like, oh, okay, that now that's now that's the chicken sandwich that I should be sucking dick for. 
And uh, you go out and you have it, and it's pretty damn good. That Popeye's chicken sandwich, the one, the chicken sandwich we're talking about here, is is really good. Uh, spicy or not, you know. Trigger warning if you haven't eaten yet, because I'm going to talk about chicken sandwiches for the next five minutes. Uh, now, to capitalize on this, everybody is is coming out with a, ch- with a chicken sandwich. Now, I'm going to talk about KFC. The KFC near me is uh, one of the most successful in Canada, evidently. And uh, they, they've got a chicken sandwich. they got the Zinger as well sandwich. Uh, but they had like a, a standard uh, deep fried chicken breast uh, kind of KFC style with, with your mayo and your lettuce and your bun. And that was it. Now, they started a- uh, advertising something called the classic chicken sandwich. It's four bucks. And you pull up and you realize that is not the classic chicken sandwich. That is a new chicken sandwich that you have never had before. It is a huge piece of chicken. It has pickles. And it is clearly trying to ape the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Now, it will be no surprise to you to know that I've eaten all of these chicken sandwiches. In fact, I've eaten all of these chicken sandwiches multiple times. I consider myself a bit of a uh, connoisseur, as it were. Or at least, uh, I can give you my honest opinion. Especially because you can't just eat a chicken sandwich once and call it a day. You gotta have it multiple times. Uh, they got you know spicy, regular, all kinds of different options to really see whose cuisine re- reigns supreme. Uh, you know you gotta you gotta get in there. So suddenly they have this new chicken sandwich, and the old chicken sandwich is removed. You go through the drive-through, and there is a painstaking uh, job clearly put on the on the board where that old chicken sandwich is gone. And, and the new chicken sandwich is now there. As if a Mandela effect is happening. And that old chicken sandwich never existed. It's gone. I don't know if they just didn't want to carry lettuce in that building or what. But that old chicken sandwich fucking hit the bricks. So. Get that sandwich. It's fine. It's $4. Popeye's chicken sandwich. A little more expensive. I would say in general the Popeye's chicken sandwich is the superior sandwich. If you don't have a Popeye's near you and there's a KFC and they have that ch- sandwich on sale though. Big recommend. Give it a shot. My favorite chicken sandwich comes from Mary Brown's. Mary Brown's chicken is uh, out of, uh, I believe, the Maritimes. Uh, and they've, they've kind of spread their wings. I don't know if they're in the United States yet. They do uh, a, a tater, a like a, a potato wedge with some breading, which is uh, phenomenal. Uh, their sides were bad at first. They've now fixed that. But their chicken sandwiches are the bomb. They have the Big Mary, standard chicken sandwich, a little bit of pickle, some sauce. You can do spicy or not. They've got the Buffalo Mary, kind of the same thing, only the whole goddamn uh, patty is covered in buffalo sauce, and then you can uh, choose to put blue cheese or ranch dressing on there. Sounds kind of gross. Uh, that's my wife's favorite. And also, it's delicious. Uh, and then they have the the Spicy Mary. Now, the Spicy Mary has that red pepper dust on it, and I, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but if you've had Jollibee spicy chicken before, it's what where the spices derive from that. It's that it's that red powder, and that's what they're putting on this chicken sandwich. And you don't get the spicy mayo, you get the regular mayo with this goddamn thing. That, on average, any given day of the week, is my favorite chicken sandwich. So, of course, when I pull up to a 7-Eleven the other day, and I realize... Motherfucking 7-Eleven's getting in on the, the chicken sandwich wars. They have their own classic chicken sandwich. I got an issue with the, the use of the word classic here. I don't know if it refers to the type of sandwich. Like, is a 
uh, Kaiser bun, a, a, a chicken breast, and pickles. Is that considered the classic chicken sandwich? Like, if I said PB&J, everybody knows what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about putting bananas on the thing. We know if it's the classic PB&J, we know what I'm talking about. I think that's what's going on here. The value quotient, the how much food you get, is all over the map with these goddamn chicken sandwiches. I go to 7-Eleven, I try this sandwich. It's $5.99, this thing. $2 more than KFC, and it is half the size can't really complain about the sandwich itself though the person behind the counter made the shit out of it uh they have the the patty there she gets the bun out she's got the pickles there she's putting the veins of mayo she's putting that thing together and i wolf it down in the car before i even get home perfectly tasty fresh chicken was fine uh of course this is going to vary depending on your your local 7-eleven the one i went to is like a state-of-the-art 7-eleven it's brand new uh and pretty cool 7-eleven runs the gambit man uh all over the world in that here in Canada, or at least in Winnipeg, can't get booze at a 7-Eleven. Yet, there's a whole, like, cooler full of booze uh, at 7-Elevens in the States. And, of course, uh, 7-Eleven in Japan, uh, which is my other main uh, source of reference, has everything. And it's fantastic. And all the food is high quality. And you're better off going to 7-Eleven than fast food places, in most 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 cases. Nothing wrong with the 7-Eleven crispy chicken sandwich. If you can get it on sale, give it a shot. But it is not worth $6.00. The KFC chicken sandwich, totally worth uh, the sale price of $4, worth a, worth a shot. However, I'm on to you, KFC, with you uh, presumably just putting the, the cement blocks on the feet of the old chicken sandwich and sending it to Davy Jones' locker. What the hell happened to that original chicken sandwich? And then, of course, Popeye's. I wouldn't say overrated chicken sandwich. Is a little pricey. Is generally one of the better ones you can get. But for that same price, I'm going to opt for the Big Mary. Now, of course, we can get into... <laughs> shit. Chicken sandwiches don't end there, baby. There's there's McDonald's with their McChickens and their spicy offerings. There's Burger King with their original chicken sandwich. Not to be confused with their tender crisp chicken sandwich. But I'm going to call it a day there. Suffice it to say, uh, chicken sandwiches have been a big part of my quarantine. How about you? Hey guys, what's going on? The second part here of Reed's dumb anime segment of Lee's new podcast, Tits of the Iceberg. So today we're going to be going over another anime, and specifically in this one, I want to talk about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 4, Diamond and is Unbreakable. So if you don't know anything about JoJo's, it's a very old series that came out, uh, started in the 80s, I believe, that was inspired by like Fist of the North Star with very masculine, muscular designs. As time went on, they got more androgynous when you got to Golden Wind, which is the fifth part, it's very androgynous. Diamond is Unbreakable is part four, so it's kind of in the in-between point of the end of the masculinity and the beginning of the androgyny. Um, as far as previous JoJo's go, you really don't need to know a lot, if anything, going into Diamond is Unbreakable, besides one returning character who is Jotaro, the main character of Stardust Crusaders, which is part three. Besides that, all you need to know is that the main power of the JoJo series, which are called Stands, is present which are basically physical manifestations of a person's persona, a lot like a persona, uh, with special abilities. And these abilities range from basic things like punching really hard to ultra-specific things like uh, dissolving someone in a mold if they go below the sea level. <laughs> um, so Diamond is Unbreakable is unique in this series. The typical JoJo formula is a very epic, grandiose story with a larger-than-life villain and uh, lots of stakes on the line. Diamond is Unbreakable is a little bit different from that formula because it takes place in a small town called Morio and it focuses on a small group of high school friends 
as they try to track down and take out a serial killer in their town. Now, the serial killer doesn't have any grandeur plans beyond wanting to kill and having a quiet life. Uh, even most of the series doesn't even deal with this main villain. It's a very episodic anime for the first half, which means every week you're dealing with a new bad guy or a new situation that they have to overcome. And they're not necessarily all battles either. Sometimes they're just fun slice-of-life situations. Uh, our main character, Yosuke, has his stand, which is called Crazy Diamond, and can revert anything back to its original state. And he uses this very well during the series, often in tactical fights. Um, Yoshikage Kira is the main villain of this particular part, his design being based off peak cocaine David Bowie. Uh, he's very charismatic and his story has lots of twists and turns and really cool anime stuff. Uh, highly recommend this series for that alone. The villain is absolutely fantastic. The action is fun. The characters are unique and the situations are very light and, and fun despite it being about a serial killer. The actual series itself and the color palette even is very saturated and wonderful I uh, can't say enough good things about Diamond is Unbreakable. It's my favorite JoJo's part. I, I just, I love the I love the easygoing tone of it, the slice of life attitude it has. Before it gets down to the nitty gritty with Kira, who is a very unique villain in the JoJo series. So yeah, that's all I have for you guys today. Uh, take it back to Lee. Have a good one. German word for hearing a genre of music for the first time. Uh, trot music is a genre of Korean popular music known for its repetitive rhythm and uh, vocal inflections originating in Korea during Japanese occupation in the first half of the 20th century. Trot was influenced by many genres of Korean, U.S., and European music. Trot music is, it kind of runs the gambit. There's more ballady, slow ones. Uh, there is more upbeat dance stuff with Spanish guitar, electric guitar comes in, very fast-paced, and then the vocals have that uh, the tremolo, that verbo as a musician, I'm having a hard time articulating, it's that... It's that... that And uh, it's it's awesome. It's a, it's a great genre of music, and uh, if I had to choose trot music over, uh, let's say something like contemporary country music over here, uh, you know, in a heartbeat... Uh, so this thing was around, for, this music style was around for like a hundred years and mostly sounds like old shit. It's the stuff you, uh, you know, a lot of it almost sounds like uh, it, when you accidentally hit the wrong button on a karaoke machine and it starts playing some song uh, with that Muzak sounding music. It, it's it's that. It's a certain je ne sais quoi. Uh, but you'll know when you hear it, you'll you'll know the, the, the way the vocals are sung and stuff like that. And it was considered old-fashioned style music, much in the way that if we heard you know, a song come on from the Righteous Brothers or something like that. You're like, oh, that's like old 50s, 60s stuff. Uh, however, in the early 2000s, a number of artists kind of brought this genre of music back and made it cool. Or at least like the hipsters thought it was. Let's see, the rise of, the rise of, of K-pop, of course, astronomical. Uh, something we all know about the world round. Trot hasn't really penetrated in that same way. But in South Korea, 
uh, specifically, it, uh, it it's very ingrained in the pop culture, and a lot of young stars, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, are coming into the business as trot singers, singing these ballads, singing in this style, and and becoming huge names. Uh, Hong Jin Young is, is who we just heard uh, coming in there. Uh, and she's also uh, one of the subjects of one of the variety shows I watch. And now the thing with Korean variety shows you have to understand is that they are, uh, it's reality TV in, in, the, in the most purest form that a lot of this isn't cooked, uh, which is, some of it is, and as far as I know, all these people are, are huge, great actors and uh, they're, they're convincing me. But no, there, there's something wholesome, there's something very genuine about these shows and it's up to the producers to plan a show with editing and everything else they do. And a lot of these shows share that same kind of DNA uh, to make it interesting even if it isn't and that's where you believe it 100% because you're watching someone eat in most of these shows most of the time lunch or what they're eating or where they're going to eat or what the person is preparing is a huge part of Korean variety television and a huge part of their culture which is maybe why I love them so much uh we we're just gonna skim the surface of of this but I uh me and my wife subscribe to something called Kokawa we we uh, we're kind of forced there after some of our favorite shows uh, went there uh, like exclusively for streaming. They're based out of LA. And it's like seven bucks a month or something, US. And uh, for the amount of content I watch on this, well worth it. Uh, my uh, main five shows right now, it's a newer show. There's Crazy Recipe Adventure. There's Two Days and One Night. There's Running Man. There's How Do You Play. And there's My Little Old Boy. And these aren't deep cuts. These are relatively very popular variety shows. And uh, a lot of people, uh, my wife included, who started watching these uh, two decades ago, were watching variations of these existing shows. A show called X-Man, for example, kind of morphed and became Running Man. Uh, so all these shows have hosts. And sometimes the hosts are career hosts. Other times, and most commonly, there are people from other shows in different combinations, sometimes including someone new that you're not used to, uh, or subjects or guests uh, from newer things or up-and-coming things. Uh, and it's really hard to compare this to anything on uh, American TV uh, that, that we're used to. It, nothing is structured this way. So I'm going to start with something uh, a little easier uh, in two days, one night, which is a traveling variety show, usually involves the host's uh, being taken uh, somewhere in South Korea and it's it, a huge thing for tourism they've received a lot of rewards for just having episodes uh, happen at these places and the whole gimmick of the show is it takes place over two days including the one night and uh, they are not fed they are not allowed to sleep uh, unless until they decide or things are decided based on the game or the plot of the episode uh, sometimes it'll be as simple as playing a game uh, like hide and seek is something that just came up on an episode of Running Man that we watched yesterday. Uh, sometimes a little more, uh, it's, a, it's a feat of strength. It's, it's something uh, to do with coordination. It's, it could be anything. Literally anything. Uh, it, it, I'm asking you a trivia question. Every time you get it wrong, I push a button and a balloon inflates full of flour over your partner's head. And if you don't get this thing right, that's going to blow up. That kind of stuff. Uh, what's really cool in this show is uh, what can you take away from celebrities... Uh, that makes their that gives the show stakes, and it's sleep deprivation and it's hunger, and they're perfect. N no matter how much money you have, no matter how successful you are, you're hungry 
and you want to have a good night's sleep. And we're going to deny you that. So you start feeling bad. Like So so this uh, particular season has gone on for like 70 episodes now. Uh, Kim Jong-min, who you're going to hear a lot about because this guy is, he, he works nonstop. Uh, he is a, he was a backup dancer. He has uh, some albums. He was part of a band called Kyoti. Uh, and the whole thing with, with, you have to understand is that no avenue is if you want to act if you want to like over here we're like holy shit eminem and eight mile no korea has been doing that like not if you want to act if you want to sing if you want to dance if you want to be in a variety show if you want to cook if you want to do all these things all these things are open to you you are limited only by your fan base and who will support you doing what right so uh, Kim Jong-min is the only uh, surviving host. There was some controversy with the previous seasons of this. I won't go into. Uh, they're also still uh, available for watching as well. But he's the remaining host. He himself, like I said, uh, I guess you'd call him a musician by nature. Uh, or, or or something like that. Uh, there are two actors joining on the show. There is uh, uh, Dindin and Ravi, who are also musical artists. There are two comedians. Uh, and then uh, two two full-on actors in uh, Sian Ho and... Uh, uh, well, Say Hyun is the yeah. Trying to get trying to get straight, looking at names that I, I never read on a, a piece of paper. Jung Hoon is one of the actors as well. Uh, so uh, you have a cast of of six guys. They are constantly being uh, partnered up in different combinations. Uh, there is, of course, like pro wrestling, an arcing story of who gets fucked over the most, who's the most unlucky, and this transcends most uh, Korean uh, television. So you get to know these characters, quote unquote. And you see them kind of come out of their shell, even in the course of just a year, uh, and and just getting getting used to the, hey, I got to be shitty to win. And of course, the veterans on these shows, like a Kim Jong Min, knows this to be the case. He's been there. He's been doing this for a decade. He knows how to play the game. And ultimately, the true villain of the show is the producers. They are the ones denying you the food and the sleep. And if you can find a way to to fuck over their plans or circumvent them. Or, or get away with something, that's the way to do it. That's the that's the crux of the show. Uh, and of course, when they do get to eat, usually if they're split into teams, one team will get to eat this uh, delicious hot pot and meat dinner. The other uh, team will be eating seaweed and rice and have to sit there and cry over not being able to eat the good food or, or offer some kind of favor for that. There are also kinds of uh, shadowy things going on. People earn coupons or tickets or special abilities throughout the course of the episodes that they, that they can call back to in later episodes. Uh, ultimately, sometimes uh, it is decided, uh, usually split into two groups, not always the case, that one team will have to sleep outside, whereas the other team gets the amenities of sleeping inside, uh, which is a big crux of the of the show, especially because sometimes they are straight up camping or in the woods with a lean-to on, on a slanted surface. You do not want to sleep outside most cases in this show. They've made these guys sleep in conditions that it's it's hard to even imagine, and you feel bad because you, you genuinely like these characters. And uh, I'm going to get into some of the uh, specific episodes on this at another time. Uh, but it's a great adventure show, and it shows off a lot of, uh, of, of Korea, if you're interested in, in different places around the world and how things work. Running Man, a classic. Uh, we have eight hosts. Um, I don't know if I want to run them down here for you. we got UJ Suk, and how do I encapsulate UJ Suk? There is no celebrity in North America that is on the level of UJ Suk in South Korea. This man can walk anywhere with a mask on or not, and gets immediately recognized. He has a a charm. He has a charisma about him. He is Korea's MC, uh, but he does it all. Uh, he he's acted. He has sung. He has had like a top forty hit uh, in the last year here, uh, putting together a show. He has uh, how do you play? Is his other show where he 
becomes a bunch of different characters and has a bunch of different ideas. Most recently, they are doing like a love letter thing where they are reuniting uh, people who who met or knew each other a long time ago and seeing if there there can be a relationship there or something like that. It's fascinating stuff. Anyway, UJ Souk. You're going to hear a lot about him in subsequent episodes of this. Kim Jong-kook is another one. Just won a grand award this year. This man is a falsetto singer. Uh, he was part of a band called Turbo that was extremely popular in South Korea and, and somewhat internationally uh, through the 90s and the 2000s. And uh, that would be exactly what you think when you think of 2000s pop music. South Korea did the 2000s harder than anyone. Uh, we, we thought we, you know... We look at nostalgically back at the 2000s. If you look at South Korea from that same period, they were all in. Uh, and, and they never really left it. They're like, no, let's hang out here for a little bit. We'll kind of change the style up and, and, and whatnot. But for the most part, that's the peak. Let's stay there. Uh, so he also uh, is part of a lot of variety shows uh, that I watch. And is, is generally one of the, the uh, characters or personalities uh, that I think is, is a favorite of both me and my wife. Uh, Haha, who is a comedian. Imagine that. Uh, Sukjin, who is uh, kind of the old, useless, uh, b- like, punching bag of the show. He is only a year older uh, than than UJ Suk, but is often... Uh, he, he, so, there's, like, memes and music and things that permeate throughout all uh, these different variety shows. And sometimes they carry over from one to the other, especially if the production company is the same. Or if you hear this song, it means this. Uh, Sukjin has a song that plays... When he fucks up, uh, when when either he's clumsy or he fucks up the game they're playing or something like that, there's there's a, literally a theme for this guy when he fucks up, which is fantastic. Um, Se Chan, who's also a young uh, comedian, one of the newer members, uh, Suman, uh, who's a young actress, and uh, Jiho, who's one of the original members as well, uh, and uh, rounds out the crew here. I think I got everybody in there. Kwang Su, how could I forget? Kwang Su was a shy, very tall uh, actor. He's known as the Prince of Asia in some uh, in some circles. He's uh he's good. He's a good comedic actor. Uh, he's one of the better characters on the show because of how unpredictable he is. And uh, this is a guy who went from being so shy he couldn't speak to I have seen this man use his finger to claw food out of people's mouths. Uh, and just like Two Days One Night, food is often uh, something on this show that is that is held as a prize. You're hungry. We've made you work all day. You really want some food. We are going to deny that of you. Uh, and this show is is true variety. You never know what you're going to get. Sometimes the the plots will go over multiple uh, weeks, and there's a, a confusing bunch of roles. Secret roles are a big thing in this game. People are acting. Uh, and doing secret missions that the other people aren't supposed to know about, but they get caught, or someone else is uh, uh, convinced that someone else is the secret role, and they're 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 pointing them out and stuff like that. It's all great. It's all conniving. In the interest of time, I will uh, I will move on from there. My little old boy is pretty unique. We have two hosts, and then a guest, and then a panel of mothers. The mothers' sons are the subjects of the variety shows. We have that panel that we cut back to and sometimes hear them commenting, and then we are watching a hidden camera show, basically, except they know the cameras are there, uh, of these of these young bachelors. And uh, uh, Jin Young is one of the bachelors, quote-unquote, uh, that has been added to the roster as of late. Uh, Kim Jong-kook also appears on this show. A lot of him on there, and uh, a lot of other characters as well. And then Haha, and everybody appears on this show as well. And it, this is the show that maybe is the most mundane in, in description, in that, yeah, you're literally watching what people do during their day sometimes, but if you are um, interested in the experience of other people, how they go about their daily lives, there is really a lot to take away from my little old boy, 
and uh, especially in regards to uh, societal roles. Uh, they talk a lot about about love and marriage and stuff like that. Uh, and the moms have a lot of insight and are generally pretty endearing in their own right because they're watching their sons be fucking buffoons and they have to sit there amongst their peers and other moms and watch their son be embarrassing. And some of the sons are more embarrassing than others. Uh, recently, there's a there's like a run on divorced men specifically on this show where a lot of the subjects are divorced and they've formed a divorced men's club where they get together and do all kinds of lame stuff. It's pretty great. Uh, Kim Jong-kook is also a, uh, he's a, the other main characteristic about him is he's like insanely into fitness. Uh, this is a guy who's, who's very physically fit, very strong and, uh, always likes working out and things to do with that. Like an animal crossing villager who's into fitness. That's your Kim Jong-kook. Uh, look him up, do it. Crazy recipe adventure. Hey, guess what? Kim Jong-kook's on this one as well, as is HaHa, as is one of the hosts of My Little Old Boy. They're joined by another host, and uh, they review dishes uh, anonymously. They don't know who's prepared the dish. They are able to either give the dish a golden axe or a toad. As soon as the chef gets a toad, they are done. They are eliminated. Uh, a golden axe is given. It goes on to the next host. They mix up the host order. The gimmick is that they are deities, and they all have different tastes for food, which is literally the case. Jong-kook... Uh, is kind of fine with things that are complex, but mostly likes your meat and potatoes kind of stuff. Haha ha has the palate of a child and doesn't like things that are too out there. Uh, and then as you go through the host, you realize that, man, it is very difficult to make a dish that satisfies all these guys and their specific what they want. If you get the toad on the first round, you get to come out and talk to the guests while wearing a giant toad head. If you make it to the end and get all the golden axes, you also get to come out and they present you with an actual literal pin golden axe. Gold... I know is worth a lot and valuable to a lot of people around the world, but in Korea, especially giving someone just a piece of gold or a gold something uh, is something that reoccurs on a lot of these shows. So uh, the, the, the chefs themselves can be anyone from civilians to idols, uh, to actors, to actual literal chefs. And uh, that makes the show interesting when the guests who don't have any food, uh, uh, pre preparation in their in their they're not chefs themselves. We're we're talking about people from variety shows, singers, and comedians that are now talking shit about food, not knowing if a five star chef has prepared it or an idol has prepared it. And there was a long running joke that idols kept getting kicked off and eliminated, and they had to apologize to the fan bases so they wouldn't get ripped apart online. Uh, that show is is pretty damn cool. So. How do you play is the last one we didn't really talk about today. Uh, that show started as Jay Suk giving a uh, camera to one of his friends and having them follow themselves around for the day. That that show morphed into Jay Suk's comedy variety show uh, where he's done everything from putting together pop groups and recording actual albums and music uh, to, oh my god, it's it's all over the place. It's great. Uh, and I highly recommend it. Okay, thank you for letting me prattle on about Korean variety shows. I'm going to... Uh, maybe make a case study for or, or a list of things you should search out. A lot of this stuff is on YouTube, at least in clip form. So if anything I've said is interesting to you and you kind of want to see what I'm, I'm talking about, uh, there's a whole level to the production of Korean television that I didn't get to. Copyrights? Fuck copyrights. Play whatever you want. Play popular music. Play Led Zeppelin constantly. I don't know why... The Immigrant Song is so popular, but it's, you hear it constantly on Korean television. Uh, all that stuff doesn't seem to matter. I don't know how copyright laws work in Asia. It's weird that uh, all these companies are, are really trying to appeal to that market. A market that doesn't give a shit about the mouse. And will just, you know, use Disney music and stuff like that as it sees fit. Uh, is, is really interesting to me. But 
Uh, one of the first things I always recommend people watch if they want to get into Korean television is a episode of Infinite Challenge. That included one Jack Black. The actor, Jack Black. He was in uh, Korea filming something. He showed up for an episode of Infinite Challenge. They did this whole episode where they basically did a best of the Infinite Challenge games. Infinite Challenge was usually a little more straightforward, a competition. Uh, and, and it's anything from putting a pantyhose on your head that is tied uh, behind you. And then you have to leap forward and blow out a candle. Sounds crazy. Look it up. Uh, and what's really cool is Jack Black is there. And you can see the expressions on his face. That he's like, this is the one of the most fun times I've ever had. But also, this is batshit insane. And I think as a first-time viewer of Korean television, it's good to have that Luke Skywalker stand-in. To be like, what is this? I'm just going to go along with it. So I recommend that. Look up Infinite Challenge, Jack Black, and clips from that. Anyway, thank you for indulging me once again. I'm talking about my love of Korean variety television. We will talk about that once more uh, in, in in a subsequent week. Well, I'll, I'll dig into some specific episodes and tell you, uh, try to more encapsulate what's so riveting about these shows that are, are generally pretty mundane, uh, but it's the, it's the universe aspect of it. It's like the MCU. You see this character there, this personality there. He shows up on another show, shows up on another show. There's a cohesion there. You feel rewarded for having watched all of that. You understand things that are going on in these people's lives uh, outside of what you normally would out of, out of like a social media or something like that. Uh, you see where they eat and stuff like that. I'm not saying this as, as a creepy thing. I just think it feels very lived in. It feels very genuine. It feels like everything you are seeing unfold is real based on how mundane it can get, yet still be riveting. Uh, the same show can make you laugh and cry kind of thing. Big recommend. And a thing that... Uh, we've really been into around here, especially in quarantine. All right. At Iceberg Podcast is us on Twitter. LeahTissyIceberg.com is my email address. Send questions or topics there. Anything goes on this show as it is is very apparent. Uh, so let's talk about whatever you want to talk about from the world of pop culture. Send me your memes. Send me your movies. Send me your hot takes. I want them all. Thank you, Reed, for joining us again with the anime segment. We will be back on Thursday public beta podcast talk about some video games so tune into that Whew. how do you end these them damn things again what is it and that's just the tit and that yeah and that's just the tits of the iceberg <laughs>